found this mouse in a bottle of Elsinore beer that we bought at your beer store, eh? And we heard, like, when that happens, that uh, you get your beer free. It's in the Canadian criminal code, eh? Yeah. Like, there's legal precedent setting cases in law. So, like, uh, give us our free beer. You want free beer? Go to the brewery. Now get out of here before I put the two of you in a bottle. Two beer-loving brothers get the job of their dreams at a local brewery, but quickly discover a sinister plot. Listen as we chat about a very creepy statue, what Rick Moranis would be like as an uncle, and money bags filled with Canadian dollars. Then you hosers will find out if Strange Brew stands the test of time, eh? James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Welcome to the test of time, eh? My name's Alan Noe. What's your name, eh? Hey, my name is James, eh? You James that. You only say A at the end, not at the beginning. I am over Canadian. <laughs> I mean, this film, they say A every single sentence. And this film is an over-exaggeration. And I am A over A exaggerating. But, uh, you know, before we go into that film, there's nothing specific that's come out. But what's on your dream list uh, for next year's announcement or release of the next uh, Nintendo Switch? Because Nintendo is kind of an every other generation, like, hit it out of the park. The GameCube wasn't as big a hit for them, but then they knock it out of the park with the Wii. And then the Wii U isn't as big. And then they have huge with the Switch. And, you know, I hope they they, they don't uh, falter next time. But what would you say is uh, they should do in the Switch too? You know, unless they just pull a Nintendo, just go in a completely new direction. And it's not going to be a Switch 2, but rather just the next Nintendo console. Right. So, yeah, the, the rumors were swirling that it will release in the second half of next year and they're rumors and they're unsubstantiated but it has been a long time since nintendo's released new hardware not counting you know the the switch oled model um what do i want i just want backwards compatibility that is really important to me everything that i already have purchased and downloaded i just want to be able to play on switch to whatever the hell they call it I want to have my save files. That is what matters most. I think it's almost a given. You you never know with Nintendo. Nothing's a given. But it seems like it should be a given that it will be both portable and able to be connected to a TV like the Switch. That's just been such a brilliant idea. I can't imagine that it not having that feature. In my opinion, I agree with you. That would be a monumental mistake to not have this portability. However, the long question remains, is a system viable only on Nintendo products? And then, you know, minor little games that don't really require a lot of juice because... I worry that if you can only do something that's going to be able to have portable battery life that is going to last for several hours, 
if they want to do that, they're going to get further and further behind. And I wonder when the PlayStation 6 generation comes out, if Nintendo's uh, console, because it has to be as good as the, you know, the best uh, portable it could be, if it's going to be more on like, you know, really good PlayStation 5 graphics. And, you know, that's definitely really good, but it's not going to entice the people that want cutting edge graphics because that you can't usually get on a Nintendo system. Sometimes you can, but sometimes the, you know, the triple A games, Red Dead Redemption 2, you know, that's only coming out on Sony and uh, Xbox and PC right now. Yeah, I don't think Nintendo fans care. I think if you give us uh, another triple A Super Mario Odyssey type game, I don't need that in 8K or 16K or whatever. That's not the most important thing to me and I think to a lot of Nintendo fans. I don't need it to be cutting-edge graphics. Um, don't change what's good, but don't just give us a Switch 2 that's just more powerful. That will be a little disappointing to me. Um, oh, I, I, I agree. think Nintendo has something in them, but also don't do something really stupid. You know, like, I don't mean stupid, I mean, like, too niche. Like, the exercise ring, it's really cool for that one game. Wait, do you have Ring Fit Adventure? I do have Ring Fit Adventure, and I use it during pandemic, and it was a great pandemic little, uh, you know, this is a $50 uh, exercise thing that I guess I I could do without a gym membership. And uh, yeah, yeah, I totally did it in in 2020. How about you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I really liked that game. I didn't beat it, but I got pretty far that game. Yeah, so, you know... Don't do Ring Fit Adventure. Of course, you'll give us another Zelda, another uh, Mario. Wait until it's good like you always do, for the most part. We really trust you to not oversaturate us like, you know, with most franchises that will have 10 releases in 10 years. You wait your turn. Generally, one, you know, one release a generation. There'll be one Mario Kart, one Smash Brothers, blah, blah, blah. But also, give us something. Because the Switch, wow, what what a fantastic innovation. You know, the Wii U you know was great and you know al and i we've still probably the best couch games that we ever play when we have all the people together are still to this day wii u games Uh, i mean those games are so much fun yeah 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 i think what nintendo is best at is delivering fun and i'm confident that whatever their next console is will be that and i think making predictions is fun and i'm happy to do it and have the conversation with you but we're going to be wrong. Nintendo always zigs when everyone expects them to zag. So we'll see is what the final prediction is. I don't know, but I'm guessing I'm going to like it. Here's a prediction that I can guarantee I'm going to buy it. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, yeah, I, I guess so. <laughs> so um, let's talk about uh, Strange Brew from 1983. Usually it is me giving you this instruction, but you asked me, don't look anything up about this film, and I knew nothing about it. Had you heard of Bob and Doug McKenzie, like the the characters? Never heard of them. Really? Okay. Well, one step back. Had you ever heard of SCTV? Yes, yeah, that, that's the like Canadian, not quite SNL, but sketch comedy show, Kids in the Hall, like more akin to the Kids in the Hall budget. Like it was like zero budget, uh, you know, Canadian broadcasting channel stuff. Right. I think that's fair to call it the Canadian Saturday Night Live, except, you know, Saturday Night Live is in its what, 
40 something season and SCTV ran for a handful of years and a handful of episodes and some of their seasons were like just repeats but the alumni list of SCTV I mean some very 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 famous very funny people Notably, John Candy, Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, Harold Ramis, and of course, Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis. They all came out of this show. So this is like a who's who of Canadian comedy, but also just comedy in general. Yeah. um, Was SCTV live? No, no, no. It was not live. The conceit of the show was that it was a television channel you know, in the middle of nowhere in a small remote Canadian town and all of the skits were programming for this channel, SCTV. So that allowed them to do news parodies and soap opera parodies and sports parodies and game show parodies. And it's kind of brilliant. A lot of Saturday Night Live skits are like that. You know, they are a parody of The View or ESPN or game shows or whatever. Sometimes there are SNL skits that are people at a bar, people at a restaurant or something like that. But the structure of SCTV, I guess, is a little limiting, but not really. They were able to do a lot with that conceit. I mean, it's the kind of thing you hear over and over referenced by people, uh, you know, SCTV. uh, This was first a character on SCTV and, you know, all that kind of stuff. This film... um, it has $4 million. I'm actually kind of shocked uh, at that number that I found. Like, if I found out that it was like $40,000, I would have been like, okay, that sounds about right. For the budget of the movie, you mean? Yeah, for the budget of the film. Um, my guess is if there was $4 million, maybe they got like a grant from the Canadian government or something. I have no idea. <laughs> but, um, you know, this, this does not look like a $4 million film. I don't know the rules exactly, but the Canadian government does allocate funds for things that are Canadian. The whole origin of these characters, Bob and Doug McKenzie, was that the Canadian government told the people making SCTV that they needed to have content that was like really Canadian in the show. And Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas were like, what are you talking about? This whole show is so Canadian. Everything about it is Canadian. It's made by Canadians in Canada. There were tons of Canadian jokes, but they had to, you know, fulfill this mandate. So they had two minutes that they just filled with every Canadian stereotype. They put them all into these characters, Bob and Doug McKenzie, because they love beer. They love hockey. They love donuts. They are always dressed up like it is freezing cold. The name of their show is The Great White North. It's just all of the Canadian stereotypes. They say A all the damn time. And this was supposed to be filler. This was supposed to be content that no one was going to care about. It was just to appease the Canadian government. And it was the runaway smash success of SCTV. There were other characters that people liked. And uh, Martin Short also was on SCTV. I didn't mention him before. He had some notable characters. But this was the breakout famous skit of SCTV. And it really wasn't supposed to be. And it seems similar to Saturday Night Live, where the most successful skit ever that broke out on its own success is Wayne's World, which was put on the experimental 1250 slot. And uh, yeah, it's it's really fun to see uh, 
people break out. And it's also fun to see a film like this. These are guys that you can tell are like, yeah, I guess if it's $4 million, they're like, wow, we have $4 million to make a movie. Like there's a couple of things that are kind of like, as if like they used to make student films and now they have $4 million. Wow, eh? This is amazing. Yeah, but for anyone who's like you and is unfamiliar with the movie, it's about two bumbling Canadian brothers, Bob and Doug McKenzie. They love beer, but they don't have jobs or money to buy it. They solve all their problems at once when they're hired by the Elsinore Brewing Company. The founder of the brewery had recently been killed, and his daughter Pam is taking over. But Pam, Bob, and Doug discover that Pam's father was killed by the evil brewmeister, who is putting mind control chemicals in the beer. With a little help from a former hockey player named Rosie, Bob and Doug become heroes when they foil this nefarious plot. They also manage to get their hands on a truckload of free beer. Not bad, eh? So, this movie had a $4 million budget. How did it do at the box office? Ah, uh, well, to answer your question, bad, eh? Aww. Aww. Um, it was released on August 19th, 1983. End of summer is not the best time for a movie to, to really grow. It did uh, wind up grossing $8.5 million. It, it seems like these characters did endure. And uh, Rick Moranis, uh, who is almost unrecognizable uh, when I first turned on the film... Oh, really? Yeah, I thought he was... Uh, at first, I, I was like, oh, oh my God, that that's Rick Moranis. And uh, it did take me a moment because, you know, he's even different once he's at Ghostbusters. But I did see that there was this uh, in the late 90s, um, Rick Moranis and Paul Thomas, they did reunite. And he did come out of his retirement. Uh, Dave Thomas, the two of them came out to do a, like a Molson commercial and they reprised this, uh, these characters. And that was the Rick Moranis that I knew. And I was like, oh, there's the honey, I shrunk the kids, Rick Moranis. And uh, here, uh, I mean, of course, he's recognizable. I wasn't like, which one is him? But it really <laughs> was to me. Like, I mean, he is several years younger, even though he's in uh, Ghostbusters. But in Ghostbusters, he has this weird hairdo where it's like slicked down. So that's a costume in and of itself, his, out, his whole outfit. Okay, so you didn't recognize Rick Moranis right away. At the end of last week's episode, I said that this movie starred one of our favorites, were you expecting someone in particular? Um, I didn't think it was Harrison Ford or something like that, but I thought maybe like Michael J. Fox could have been in it or something like okay. that. I was thinking it was it was some eighties guy. That that's that's really what I was thinking. Um, okay, I, so so I wasn't off. So uh, no, I did not guess Rick Moranis. Okay, all right. This is Rick Moranis's first movie, by the way. And he co-wrote it and co-directed it. He and Dave Thomas wrote and directed this movie. And just my history with this movie, I had only seen it once before. I watched it with some friends in high school. They were kind of into some obscure movies and they put it on. I really didn't remember much. I remembered that they said A a bazillion times. I remembered the gag where Rick Moranis is in the, uh, the vat of beer and he drinks all of it. That might have been it. That might have been all I remembered about the movie. But I really wanted to see it again just because I hadn't seen it in so long. And I do love Rick Moranis. But I was reading some trivia that Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas 
they didn't really know how movies worked. They were given this movie because the characters were really successful on SCTV. They had an album, a comedy album that was very successful. And then John Candy, their friend from SCTV, got a movie. And so they were like, hey, maybe we can get a movie too. And they did. And then they were given the jobs of writing and directing it. And they didn't really know what that meant. They had never done that before. There was a script. And the script had some Hamlet elements in it. And they thought that they could do some rewriting. And really, they only rewrote the first 50 pages of the script. And the first 50 pages of the script are filled with more out there, bonkers, surreal elements. And then once they get to Elsinore Brewery, then it kind of gets more involved with the plot and the brewmeister played by Max von Sydow. I think there there is sort of a line where you can kind of tell they rewrote the first part and didn't really rewrite the last bit. I didn't really love the whole brewmeister is poisoning the beer thing for a variety of reasons, mainly, though, because it's just confusing. Uh, while I will talk about things that made me laugh, this movie is incredibly, incredibly stupid. Uh, I mean, <laughs> when you tell me there's Hamlet elements, I'm like, okay, the dead father. And I get what you're doing here. But that doesn't make this film not incredibly stupid. But the film's not trying to not be stupid. I mean, like you were talking about the other scene you remember is there's a scene where Rick Moranis and uh, a woman are going to be drowned in one of these huge uh, stainless steel uh, beer bins, just, you know, filling up with beer. And how does Rick Moranis save the day? He drinks all the beer and he inflates to like cartoon size and you know yeah. it's that kind of film and when this film started i rewound the beginning because i laughed out loud and when the uh, mgm logo comes up there's you know the lion comes up and has that huge roar which by the way is a tiger roar apparently um, not yes. a lion roar. This film opens up with a lion and it doesn't roar. You see, like, the film kind of cuts away and there's Rick Moranis twirling the tail of a, uh, of a lion the same way you'd be, like, cranking, like, a toy, like, musical box. He's like, come on, eh, roar, eh, we got a movie to do, eh. I was like, what the hell is this? That was <laughs> hysterical and it's a movie within a movie and we don't realize that the very beginning of the movie that we're watching is a very rough and poorly made film that they're screening for an audience that seems to be yeah. aware of the Bob and uh, Doug show like they, they seem to be Bob and Doug yeah. fans that are disappointed in this film that they're seeing well, it's, it's meta. It's a meta joke within the zombie movie that they're showing. They say it's kind of like Omega Man. So like they're talking about how their movie is sort of like another movie within their movie within their movie. So that can make your head spin. 
But yeah, it, it's out there. It's really, really ridiculous. Then they go home and they're talking to their parents. You don't see their parents right away. Then later on in the movie, they walk in on their parents having sex. Did you catch who their parents were? No, who was it? It's them. It's Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas. <laughs> they're like, you know, dressed up as their own parents. It's totally fair that you didn't see it. They're on screen for like one second. But the surreal bonkers stuff in this movie, I think is really, really funny. And I got frustrated by all the Brewmeister plot stuff. Like, I get it. These characters are really funny in the two-minute segment on SCTV. Do they have the legs to sustain an entire movie? Maybe these characters only work best in small doses. You you haven't said this, but if you were to say that, James, or if any other people out there think that about these characters, fine. That's valid, and I get it. But weirdly, I really like this movie when they're on screen, and whenever they're not on screen, I wish they were. Even though they are very one-note characters who just care about beer and calling each other hosers and saying, take off, which means like get lost, I guess. I feel like this movie suffers greatly when they are not on screen. Did you feel the same way? People don't give someone like Rick Moranis credit, but this guy is such an underrated actor. If he was your uncle... That would be, like, the coolest fucking greatest uncle ever. Like, Rick Moranis just seems, like, so nice and so funny. And I agree with you in that I think any scene that Rick Moranis is not in is suffering. You know, Max von Sydow, I wouldn't say that his scenes are as fun because of exactly what you said. I think the evil brewery subplot, or specifically the poison brewery subplot, is just particularly stupid. I thought um, we were heading towards a more straight up, like, oh, he dies or, you know, he's murdered. And there's a fight over control of this, like, million-dollar corporation that makes total sense, especially in a quote-unquote modern 80s take on Hamlet. It makes total sense. But instead, there's a ghost. And then I don't think Rick Moranis or uh, Dave Thomas were asking for that. And as Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas are holding up money bags of Canadian dollars, they're like, <laughs> okay, we'll come up with something. You know, uh, when you're given that money from SCTV, and this is a $4 million budget, they wrote, directed, and starred in this film. I think this changed their lives, this film. Yeah. Oh, it, it definitely did. I mean, Ghostbusters was the following year, 1984. These characters put Rick Moranis on the map, and this movie definitely helped elevate the awareness of American audiences of him, certainly. You know, it's really funny to me just the way they talked uh, Canadian. I say that, you know, with air quotes. The fact that they would say, eh, and call everyone, what, what, like, a, a hooser? A hoser? Oh, James. Well, he was saying, yo, hoser. I I didn't know what he was saying. I don't even know these Canadian slangs. A hoser is a slang Canadian term for someone who's dumb, basically. Don't be an idiot is what they're saying when they say don't be a hoser. That word got popular largely in part because of these characters. So you said that there were certain parts of the movie that made you laugh. What were some of those parts? Because I'm very, very curious. 
I thought that opening with the MGM line was hysterical. I, I laughed twice when I saw it. Um, there is a part where um, uh, someone says, uh, is that a Bonaparte? And the, the answer was, no, it's a Napoleon. It was so stupid, but it made me laugh out loud. Okay, that's a good one. I did laugh out loud at probably the stupidest part of the film. I'm like embarrassed I left. I mean, it reminded me of kind of like crawl bad special effects um, when the ghost comes. And it's really, really bad, like almost like 60s special effects. But then as this like laser beam that's supposed to represent the ghost is flying around the, the, the room, it's incredibly cheesy. It suddenly goes on the wall and there's this neon flash that says, nice effects, eh? Nice effects, comma, E-H question mark. And I laughed out loud. I thought, oh my God. Like, it was all building to that, and I thought that was very funny. Them just sitting on their couch, just saying eh over and over, just, it was just a joke that made me laugh. Like, it was just like putting my palm in my hand, like, what the fuck is this? But I was laughing at it because this was not Canadian. Like, I was like, am I mistaking how Canadians talk? No, this is definitely not how they talk. It took about 10 minutes for me to realize it. But after that, I just started laughing every time they said it. That is funny. I worked with several Canadians when I was working at Fuse uh, with last week's guest, Jason Torres. There was one woman, she didn't say A all the time, but she could not pronounce the word bagel. We were in New York City. We really tried to get her to say bagel, but she could only refer to it as a boggle. And it just was always weird. Uh, but no, I have never heard a Canadian speak like Bob and Doug McKenzie. Um, you didn't ask, but I'll tell you some of the moments that really cracked me up. There's a part where they're underwater and they should be dead because they're in this van that's been underwater for a really long time. And there's a line that even Houdini couldn't have stayed underwater for that long, which I guess is a test of time thing. Eh, maybe not. People know Houdini. But a policeman comes down to see if they're okay and is shocked to find them alive because they've been breathing from the beer bottles. And when the cop knocks on the window, he goes and shows him his license like he's getting pulled over when they're underwater. That's really, really funny. Um, and there's another great just throwaway line when the two villains, uh, Max von Sydow and Pam's uncle, who killed Pam's father, played by Paul Dooley. They're on the road trying to kill Bob and Doug McKenzie. It's right before they go in the water. And the uncle says, it's really nice to just get out of the brewery once in a while. You know, just go for a ride. And, you know, Max von Sydow is an evil, evil brewmeister is looking at him like, what are you talking about? We're not friends. But it's it's just like, he's trying to make small talk. And I thought that scene was really, really funny. A lot of the, the little moments that they put in this movie really, really work for me. There's a part where they have a lawyer and he like beats up all of these reporters that show up uh, in front of the courthouse. That felt very Anchor man to me. Um, yeah, I see what you're talking about. Um, did you happen to watch the credits of this film? Yeah, they talk over it. They talk about like what it was like, and oh yeah, that guy was pretty cool on set. 
Yeah, yeah, that, I thought that was really funny. It was like like a DVD commentary when when actors do it in character. Um, yes, that gave me one last laugh. I was like, "Wait, what?" And because like, I wasn't expecting that, because I think it maybe goes to like music as they're gonna take all the poisoned beer because I guess it's not that poisoned or something. Right. They say that the effects will wear off if you're not constantly drinking it, which, okay, so there's a gag that they're going to drink it. But also then they didn't really need to stop all of the people at Oktoberfest from drinking it, because if they did drink it and then they stopped production of the poison beer, everyone would be fine. So that does kind of like retroactively lower the stakes. And you're definitely Definitely not supposed to think about that because also it's not poison. It's, I think, mind control. There's a part where they play certain tones on a keyboard and that makes these people at the insane asylum turn into super soldiers, kind of, but only while playing hockey. So I don't know what the point of that is. Is it just so that like if it's mind control, people will like their beer? None of it is clear at all. You know, it does break the uh, supernatural wall a couple times. Um, I thought the the joke in the in the beer bin when he inflates the comic size. I, I thought that was stupid. I, I thought that was grown. Like, uh, oh, I love that joke. Eh, I didn't like it. I thought that was stupid. Um, the underwater gag. Um, they're breathing from beer bottles. Like, that's not even close to being plausible, but who cares? Like, the film does kind of teeter on, is it, like, just, like, a low-budget comedy film, or is it a low-budget kind of a cartoonish comedy film? Well, I think that's a valid point, and that's sort of what I was saying earlier about, like, all the Hamlet stuff. I think this movie is trying to do too many different things at the same time. And the thing in Hamlet, and it does happen in reality, sadly, is that this man murders his brother and then is trying to kill his niece. And that's pretty fucking dark if you think about it. Maybe you're not supposed to think about it, but that's not funny. And a lot of this movie is just really silly, surreal comedy And when you're thinking about, like, this murder, it's like, that's really fucked up. And then there's also the ghost of the deceased father. Yes, that's right out of Hamlet. But also is just kind of weird in this movie because, as the movie references, these special effects suck. And the haunting doesn't really make a ton of sense. It's just very, very contrived. And, like, if something is contrived for comedy in this movie... I think it works. My personal feeling is like, okay, I'm into that. But when it's contrived for plot mechanics, that just kind of made me groan. I'm like, uh, I don't, I don't like this. I just want to see like the stupid, silly shit. I completely agree with you on the Hamlet idea. I mean, it's the perfect play. I mean, the perfect story, if you want to do that particular story. I mean, it's the story of The Lion King. It's a very simple thing to take that basis, but this film doesn't commit to that. It it sort of does a little Hamlet, and then it's like, all right, here's a bunch of comedy that's not going to have anything to do with it, and here's more comedy. Famously in Hamlet, um, there's these two side characters, Rosencrantz and Gilderstern, in The Lion King, that's uh, Timon and Pumbaa, Uh, you know, these two guys, Doug and Bob, but, uh, or I should say it the right way, right? Bob and Doug. Um, Yes, you should. (laughs) Yeah, 
it could work if they did it, but it just doesn't work in in the way that it kind of like teeters in. It's like, oh, remember, no, it's Hamlet. Like, eh, eh. It didn't even need the Hamlet part. You know, just make it for the, the inheritance or something. I totally agree. Apparently, the first draft of the script was really heavy on the Hamlet. Then Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas rewrote part of it and scaled back the Hamlet, but they really should have scaled it way, way, way further back, in my opinion. That makes total sense. That being said, uh, that what do you think of 1983's Strange Brew? Um, does it stand the test of time, Al? Um, there's a lot of this movie that really, really does work for me, and I find it really, really funny. I think overall, I have to say no, just because it is so disjointed and so uneven as a comedy. I think it is worth pointing out, though, that Bob and Doug as characters definitely stand the test of time. They have brought these characters back so many times over the years. There were Pizza Hut commercials. There were Molson Ice commercials. There was a cartoon. Rick Moranis didn't show up for the cartoon, unfortunately, because, you know, of his uh, retirement thing. They had an anniversary special. They were in Brother Bear, but like kind of not exactly them, but, you know, kind of like those characters in the animated movie. There's a statue of them in Edmonton, Alberta. <laughs> I mean, maybe I'll post a picture to the Instagram. It's a little creepy looking because uh, it's like kind of a realistic looking thing. But people love these characters. They really have stood the test of time. Rick Moranis has certainly stood the test of time. Dave Thomas, I'm not really very familiar with a lot of his work. I remember him from that sitcom with Brett Butler called Grace Under Fire. I don't know if you watched that show. It was kind of like a a Roseanne sort of knockoff. I think that's the only other thing I've ever seen Dave Thomas in. And, you know, when I hear Dave Thomas, I kind of just immediately think of Wendy's. This is a different Dave Thomas, but whatever. Um, I like this movie really because I like Rick Moranis. I like this movie because I think the, the surreal jokes work. The way that they save the day at the end at Oktoberfest is their dog looks kind of like a skunk and the dog flies to Oktoberfest and gets everyone to not drink the beer because they think, oh, it's a skunk. That's really stupid when I say it out loud. In the movie, it kind of works. It shouldn't. It really shouldn't. But um, I think it just does. Unfortunately, there's just so much of the brewmeister and the poisoning and the mind control stuff and the ghost in the machine all of that stuff just doesn't work. And I think if they had allowed this movie to just be the surreal, zany, off-the-wall comedy that it needed to be, it would have stood the test of time. But as it is, it does not. What do you think, James? Um, you know, I agree with you that, uh, that this almost could have been a great comedy. And a movie that I will say I liked, I don't worship like you, UHF, that was a zany uh, film that was consistently zany. And there were, there were gags that just didn't work for me. But enough of the film is fun that, that I had a good time. Unlike UHF, which was kind of more just random skits, this film had a surprise 
supposedly a plot. And when a 90-minute film feels like it's going a little long, that's a problem. Like, it really was going kind of slow. And these guys are so charming. I told you, there are a bunch of things I I laughed at. But when you asked me to name the funny things, I named the three things I laughed at. No, maybe I got like four or something. And if I even go to a film and I, you know... I'm rolling over laughing four times hysterically. That could be worth the price of admission. But usually, at least the rest of the film is nice to watch. Um, and unfortunately for for, th- for this film, I, I do have to say that uh, it does not stand the test of time. It's a lovely, like, comedy film. I don't want to watch it or recommend it to people that don't necessarily get it. There are certain people that I- I'll tell you, like, oh, you love Rick Moranis and you want to hear just, like, one big Canadian joke that's kind of stupid, but funny stupid. For for an hour and a half, this is the movie for you, and it's gonna be kind of be like mystery science theater bad, but kind of funny too. I, I found it charming, but as overall, it does not stand the test of time. Fair, fair. There was one line that I think really does stand the test of time. When they get their job, there's a lot of automation at the brewery, and one of the guys says, "Welcome to 1984, the age of automation and unemployment." And I was like, that's what people are saying now. Like, the robots are going to take all of the jobs. There's not going to be anything for people to do. They were saying that 40 years ago from a real-world test-of-time perspective. That line definitely stands up. Yeah. Another random thought that I liked about this movie, because we not that long ago talked about Smokey and the Bandit, and I kind of felt like there was like just too much praising of Coors beer in that movie— I like that this movie takes place in a fictional brewery, you know, so it's not just like distracting of like annoying product placement. And there is going to be some tie in with Molson or some other Canadian brewery. I forget which, but they didn't want to because there's a part of the movie where they put a dead mouse in the beer bottle and they use that to try to get free beer. And so they the real life brewery didn't want to have anything to do with them. It works better that it's a made up beer company, I think. Absolutely. And I wouldn't fault them if they made, apparently they were trying to make a uh, sequel. And, you know, if they worked in, uh, you know, Molson, that would be fine. Because I think the two of them became so associated with Molson that uh, it, it would almost work later on. Yeah, the sequel fell apart. It was supposed to have Dan Aykroyd and he was going to convince them to be like micro brewers. Honestly, I could imagine that working. I could imagine it not working too. I mean, you never know. Yeah, that that's a that, that's a totally fine uh, premise for a sequel. It was supposed to happen like in the late '90s. At that point, Rick Moranis knows more about Hollywood. I think he could have made more of the movie that he wanted to make, and Dave Thomas too. Um, I could imagine that that would have worked. And also, I just think it's a shame that there aren't more Rick Moranis movies in general, just in the world. I realize I'm asking this question of a Jew. Have you ever heard their version of 12 Days of Christmas? No, I've never heard of it. It's very funny. Um, It's just like, on the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me beer. And that's it. That's Rick Moranis. And then Dave Thomas is like, you need more there. A beer in a tree. Yeah, that that sounds much better. It's a very funny uh, Christmas song. Yeah, apparently they did have some comedy album that sold like a million copies. And that's what like got the funding for this film. 
Right, right. And and the song Take Off was performed by Getty Lee, the frontman of Rush, Canadian royalty. That was a very popular single back in the early 80s. It's not bad. It's fine. But that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about The Foot Fist Way, Danny McBride's first movie. I love Danny McBride almost as much as I love Rick Moranis. Eh, on par, I would say. So I'm really looking forward to watching that movie. In the meantime, talk to us. Let us know what you think about Strange Brew and Posers and ending every sentence with the word eh. Uh, write to us. We are at Tested Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Threads. And uh, we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye, eh? Now take off, you hosers. <laughs>